Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, we are welcoming back Manish Kataria from Invest Like a Pro. Manish is an investment expert across various different asset classes, so it's going to be great to uh, ask him some questions and get a bit of insight from him in terms of various different assets and how they're behaving at the moment. So welcome, Manish. Great to have you back again. Thanks, Rod. Good to be back on the broadcast. <laughs> Good stuff. Would you mind for those listeners that maybe don't know who you are to just give a, a quick bit of background as to, as to who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So Manish Kataria, I guess I'd describe myself as a, as a passive investor. So, you know, I've, my, my background is in sort of professional fund management. So I used to work in, in the city here in uh, London, used to work uh, for JP Morgan and, and one or two other investment houses managing uh, their money and managing the money of pension funds who invested with JP Morgan. So my asset classes were primarily equities. I did a bit of fixed income, did a little bit of property, a bit of private equity, but mainly in global equity. So that's that's kind of my background, and and I'm still doing that now. I'm still working in the city on a part-time basis, but I don't have to go in on a you know on a sort of full-time day job basis, which is which is nice. But you know, in terms of my own investments, I you know I, I invest in equities, I invest in property as well. So you know, those are two sort of main asset classes, amongst one or two other things. Brilliant. So I guess one of the questions I've got is with the pandemic and COVID seemingly dare i say it kind of doing well and omicron coming seeming to get out everywhere do you think the pandemic ending will be good or bad for different asset classes like equities because we've seen obviously people's i I guess a lot of a lot of money has flown into equities over the past two years and also property prices here in the uk certainly in, in residential anyway do you think it's going to be good or bad for those different asset prices and and why um i think it's ultimately you know it's a positive thing of course right not just for i mean you know but the obvious reason being for for everyone's health and our well-being and you know and that drives confidence in the economy so when people are feeling better and more confident about the state of the world they'll be more confident to to spend money so that's consumers and companies will be you know more confident to invest in their businesses and and hire more people so that's all all a positive the only i guess i guess where you're angling this question is you know what's the impact on interest rates and qe and easy money and you know if the when the pandemic hopefully it will end at some point you know it stabilizes you know there is an argument that yes interest rates will have to go up and sort of normalize but i don't think interest rates are going to go up significantly you know pre covid interest rates were at sort of 1% and you know for me i think that's almost like the new normal you know low interest rates and you know in that environment you know all asset prices will i think you know, tend to do well once they get the initial shock of rates going up. But I don't see rates going materially over the next, you know, three, five years. No, I, I, I tend to agree with that. What about, I guess, so the tapering of QE? How would, how would you imagine that to affect it? How would you imagine kind of some of the things that we've seen, like the, uh, 
uh, bounce back loans, certain grants and that, that businesses and individual families have actually seen getting in their pocket, I guess. It mm. seems like disposable income has, has, has been pretty good for the sort of individual out on the street, really. How do you think that would affect some of these asset prices? I mean, look, if all else being equal, more liquidity is better than less liquidity, especially in the sort of short to medium term. In the long term, you can argue it's, it's bad for everything. Yeah. So, you know, if that liquidity is going to be taken away in a meaningful way, in a drastic way, then that's not good. But, you know, if you look around the world, you look at the Fed in the US, you look at uh, the central bank in the UK and Europe, you know, everything's well telegraphed. You know, the, the, the authorities are very, very uh, careful not to disrupt the markets because they know, they know how important markets are, bond markets, equity markets for confidence in. So that their biggest priority will make sure that, you know, there's no kind of disruption. We, you know, we, we go back to, you know, we, we have a sort of um, a, a playbook on this. So back in 2008, 2009, we had QE and that was kind of, tr- they tried to wind that down. Mm-hmm. And we had what was called a taper tantrum back in 2013. And, you know, that was a bit of, that was when it wasn't as well managed, well telegraphed and bond yields just went through the roof in 2013. And, you know, they've learned from that now. So they've telegraphed what's happening now well in advance. So hopefully that will limit, you know, the surprise, the unexpected surprise uh, on the downside. And and, I mean, you you talked about interest rates going up earlier. Uh, How important do you think interest rates are for different asset prices? They are important. I mean, you know, look, interest rates, interest rates drive, well, look, interest rates drive what we earn on our cash. They, They drive bond yields, they drive what's called the risk-free rate. And, you know, all other asset classes, you can argue, are sort of based upon the risk-free rate, yeah. right? So, so it is important, you know, very important for some asset classes. So property, which obviously you know, you know all about and you're involved in uh, quite heavily, you, you know, interest rates are, there was, a, there was actually a study done by the Bank of England a few years ago, and they did a sort of long-term study on the drivers of UK house, house prices. And I think they discovered 80 to 90 percent from a sort of statistical significance point of view was you know 80 to 90 percent of the movement in house prices was down to interest rates so you know massively important property prices which you know property is a leveraged asset class right most people buy property using mortgages and loans so it clearly has um you know a big impact on on property but also equities because you know from a pure valuation point of view equities are priced off the risk-free rate. So, so it has a big impact. And so, you know, that's the, that's the big, not necessarily unknown factor, the big, big long-term variable. If interest rates go up significantly, mm-hmm. yeah, then that's, uh, that could be a problem for asset prices. And when I talk about, when I say the word significantly, I'm really talking about sort of way in excess of 3%. So, yeah. And um, I guess, what are some of the other things that the government can do in terms of getting a handle on inflation. Um, I I think everyone's bored of hearing about inflation, but we can't really kind of get away from discussing it, I suppose. Um, Like, is this a cost push inflation because it's down to supply chain issues? Is, are we now seeing wage inflation kind of start to creep up? Um, And how, and how, how do you think governments, Bank of England can, can deal with that really what do they have in their playbook apart from raising rates and is raising rates actually going to do anything 
is a cost pusher supply side issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. You know, the if it was demand-led, if it was purely demand-led, yes, interest rates would have an impact. Sure. But because a lot of this, it's, it's always hard to know how much of it is cost push and how much of it is demand pull. There's a combination of the two, but really the, the big uptick in inflation, you know, talk about energy. If you look at the breakdown of what's causing the inflation spike up, uh, and, and remember in the US, it's got you know, risen to 7% now. So it's all about energy prices, commodities, secondhand car prices, all of the supply shortage related stuff. And, you know, because it's cost push inflation, which seems to be evidently the case, you know, interest rates can't do much about that, right? In fact, you can make an argument to say, if you push up interest rates, it will only make the supply shortages worse, right? And because, you know, companies will spend less on in, on their investments, on capital investment, they'll hire fewer people, it, it becomes a less attractive environment for companies to invest. And what that does is it actually reduces supply even further, kind of making the inflation situation even worse. So it's, it's kind of hard. Yeah, there's, there's no easy fix to supply side inflation. And again, we've been there in, this, in the 70s. We had a you know, pretty horrific inflation and central banks around the world tried to do something about it by increasing interest rates. And we kind of look back and say, well, that was maybe a bit of a mistake because it didn't really achieve what they hoped to achieve so it's a tough one if that continues you know our, our hope is that our hope is that you know the inflation we're seeing now it's year-on-year inflation so it's backward looking and you know in time over the next six to 12 months we hope to see a peaking and a, a more sort of you know a normalized stabilized environment for inflation from here yeah absolutely and i guess it's sort of wage growth will play a, a big part in that it seems to be catching up and i was looking at something from the ons the other day on new jobs uh, being advertised and, and the difference in kind of salaries being being offered for say the same job last year and, and wage growth seems to be kind of beating inflation but again whether that's beating CPI or RPI and is that really what the cost is because sometimes it doesn't include energy prices sometimes it doesn't include household prices and the way they kind of work out the inflation for example I know in the US they work out inflation from cars by looking at, right, okay, how much has the um, electric windows gone up in the last 20 yeah. years? 20 years ago, they didn't have electric windows, so we'll have to take that out. And yeah. it doesn't really give you a good indication yeah. of, uh, of the inflation. It can be, a, can be know, manipulated a, a fair amount. So it looks yeah. like the actual cost of living is probably a lot more than... It is. It is. Yeah, I've, I've been saying the same for a, a while now. You know, I think the official inflation data is, has been subject to so much manipulation over the last you know, 10, 20 years. There's, a, there's a, a really interesting website I follow in the US called shadowstats.com. And they what they do is, because as you've rightly said, you know, government stats are open to all sorts of manipulation. So they go back to, you know, what the methodology was back in 1988 or something and use the same methodology to calculate what inflation would have been now. And it's kind of double where we are now. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a minefield inflation data. And I guess it's also how that basket has changed. If you're looking at kind mm. of your retail basket, what are people buying now? And as we know, we've got, I don't know, internet is a probably a household cost that wasn't really big 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Amazon accounts and, uh, and your Netflix and things like yeah. that. 
that are that are now kind of I guess staples of living, which people most people will have. Yeah, um, yeah. I've I've just had my um, annual price increase for BT broadband and TV at double digits. So you yeah, know, yeah. Sure. It, it it shows. Yeah, that's that that you know that's that has to be. In fact, that's probably more important to some people. I I own some HMOs, and you know, for for my tenants, that's more important than the quality of their mattress, yeah. the quality of broadband. So uh, yeah, it is massively important these days so like obviously from my point of view when i'm looking at building a uh, property investment portfolio i'll be looking at how different types of property where i know they're, they're based on location different use classes different tenancy types mm. um, and i'll be looking at how those correlate with one another because if a certain part of the the market goes up i ideally want as, a, as many assets as I can in that portfolio that are uncorrelated. I think it was Ray Dalio who sort of said the, the gold standard of any portfolio is 15 uncorrelated assets, but it's obviously very difficult to get that. How, how do you approach building a portfolio with, co- with uncorrelated assets? And is there anything that you tend to focus on or any tips that you can give listeners when they're looking at building a portfolio, and this doesn't necessarily have to be property, it's any investment portfolio, of, of what you would be looking to do in terms of the correlation? Yeah, it's, it's a really important question, actually, because, um, you know, we, we, we know, you know, people who your listeners will be sort of property centric, I would have guessed. And, um, you know, most people who do property sort of, you know, focus on property. And it's a great asset class. So do I, right? I mean, it's a, it's a stable asset class. It's profitable. You see capital gains, you get good income. But, you know, the problem with property, and, and you can try and diversify property between different cities and different uh, sort of types of properties. But at the end of the day, they are, as we mentioned earlier, they are subject to interest rates and subject to kind of, you know, policy, government policy, taxation policy. And there's also kind of other risks. So, F, you know, effort and tenants, toilets and boilers and things like that, which, are, you know, you're geared into all of these things. So one of the most effective ways in which I, when I advise the investors I speak to is, look, when you're in property, you're subject to two main uh, factors. One is the UK and the other one is the single sector being property so you're very sort of focused on that and one of the easiest ways to diversify from that is to kind of just go out and find a global equity etf for example that's one of the easiest most efficient and the quickest way because that gets you out of the uk you know the uk is fine right now but they said that about japan in the late 80s and and you know i think it's it's really important to be globally diversified and to be diversified across sectors so that's one obvious quick win if you want to get diversification the other thing is which is really you know i i sort of do a lot of an analysis on compounding and sort of reinvesting your capital because we've talked about inflation it's really cash is one of the most damaging asset classes from the point of view that it's the only asset class the only major asset class that is guaranteed to lose money on a day-by-day basis every day it will lose a little bit of real value and when you do property you will find yourself having lumps of cash sitting around because you're waiting from one property deal to another and and yeah so so that's and and all along you're not you're not investing it you're not making it work hard because you you know you want to deploy into the next deal but one of the quickest and easiest and most efficient ways is to just go out and buy a global equity etf right i mean there's lots of different ways to do it in different cost efficient ways but broadly speaking, that 
ticks a lot of those boxes the the diversification and and making your money work harder would you recommend then if people are waiting for deals to complete and things like that when they've got cash in the bank would you because when i when i look at kind of those equities i'll I'll be looking at more of a long-term i guess strategy but would you recommend that people put that in in a short-term way where where they're where they're waiting on because obviously look things can go down as well as what, what are your thoughts on that yeah so it's so i run i run an investments academy program it's an eight-week program and one of the first things i i teach people on that is to kind of invest with your risk profile in mind now your risk profile can be as simple as cautious balanced or adventurous or it can depend on your time horizon so what you've just mentioned there rod is you know you might have a short-term horizon because you're looking for a you know your next property deal in say six months time or something if you're concerned about markets selling off you don't want to put it all into equity. So one of the easiest ways to get around that risk is to have a balanced fund. So you have, you know, you can decide whether you want 100% equities or 20% equities or 40% equities or, or, and you know, that limits your downside risk because what happens is when you have a decent proportion in bonds that protects your downside risk it still gives you you know good returns and or or better returns than cash but it limits your downside risk that you know equities are equities over the long term you know return around 10 percent per annum you know since 1871 all the data shows that you've got double digits but occasionally equities have a bit of a a tantrum and a bit of a sell-off which is a good thing because that's what gives you the long-term returns but you don't want to take that risk if you're in the middle of a property deal. So yeah, you go for a balanced fund, limit your risks, but you still earn, uh, you know, decent returns on the back of that. Yeah, like you said, like even if it's not keeping up with inflation, as long as it's beating the other option, which is cash in the bank, then that's yeah. really all that matters. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I when I'm looking at diversifying, one of the things I'll look at is what what are the risks to my current portfolio? And like you said, we've touched on property of all types is, is subject to rates and, 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 and the UK as well. But I'd be concerned about if I'm putting it into equities, even if it is global, well, the global bit gets diversification out of the UK, which is great, but aren't equities also sort of positively correlated in the same way as, as, as UK property might be to, to rate rises and, or, or, or rate decreases. What are your thoughts on that? And should you be looking at then, right, what's the risk and how can we diversify away from that risk? Would you be looking at, I don't know, more value equities where actually it's based on, on, on the yield and actually it's the cash flow that's, that's kind of more important because they might be less likely to be affected by rate rises or would yeah. you be looking at companies or that don't have huge amounts of debt that could be affected by it? Yeah. How do you kind of, how do you go about that? Yeah, really another really good question. Um, you, you can, so what you've, what we've seen over the last two or three months is with, with inflation kind of just spiking up and with bond yields going up, the, some of the more racy, sort of growthy sectors have sold off. So technology has sold off, especially not just technology as a whole, but which has sold off, but technology, the lower quality technology stocks, which aren't yet making uh, profits, right? So investors have sold those off and have rotated away from growth into value, as, as you mentioned. And what that's, you, you see that a lot. When interest rates um, or bond yields are going up, that leads to a rotation from growth into value. Now, the great thing is, you know, if you have a diversified 
fund. And, and I've seen this over the last few months. I've seen, you know, my technology stocks selling off within those diversified funds. But the overall uh, the, the overall diversified fund has stayed pretty stable, actually, because it kind of gives you exposure to value, to growth, to yield, different markets. So, you know, you can do that. So that's great. You know, that's what I do. You can also have exposure to specific value type sectors and stocks and markets. So the UK is, is a good case in point. So the FTSE 100 has, has been a real dog over the last few years because everyone's been jumping into the US and technology. Hello, everyone. I, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between six and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product again for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed-use developments, and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do. Provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, the terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. It's subconsciously for your retirement, whether that's next week or in 50 years time, because the idea is you're living off the 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 kind of cash flows from 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 those investments where maybe you're not capable of of putting in the effort that maybe I do to property now and things like that. I guess what, one one other question that comes off the back of that then is what are your thoughts in terms of passive um, and active funds? And mm. we've seen kind of over the last I don't know, probably twenty years a lot of money kind of flowing into a lot of these kind of passive funds like Vanguard, 100% equity and all, all that sort of stuff. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of the actively managed funds have seemed to have struggled a bit to keep up with that over the long term. 
a lot of kind of quite famous investors are now coming out and saying actually these are over kind of subscribed now and there's there's now a time for actively managed funds to kind of to to go onward what what are your thoughts in terms of that yeah well the first thing to say is these these people have been saying the same thing for a long time and and it's kind of they they have a vested they have a vested in yeah they have a vested interest to kind of talk their own book because they tend to be active managers but you know look i i i love passive management and that kind of says a lot because i come from a background where i was actively managing people's money and a lot of my colleagues were as well so and and i saw the kind of fees these organizations were were taking in and it's phenomenal and and it's and i'll tell you what it's it's just not worth it because if you look at all the evidence passive beats active hands down i think something like 90 95% of active managers underperform over a 10 to 15 year time period and that's been pretty consistent for for a long time so look at passive management just works and it's success it's successful because it works and it outperforms active or or rather active underperforms passive um so that's the first thing to say and you know mainly for the fees right you see that fee reduction you get and and it sounds kind of, that kind of makes the difference because most active funds they kind of eventually sort of even themselves out and they cancel each other out and the, and the the major difference tends to be the fees which are sort of 1 2% now if you're investing in active funds you know the annual fee difference is you know close to 1% now if you compound that over 20 30 40 years it's we're talking about almost half of your entire capital pot during the, your lifetime right you're giving away you're lining the pockets of the professional fund managers who aren't actually doing a good job by by taking your money so that's the first thing to say you know can it continue it's a, that's a really good question i don't have the answer to that you know passive has been around for 20 30 well, probably a bit longer than that probably since the 60s or 70s and we haven't really been here before where there are concerns about passive growing too big and i think the true test will be in the performance right so you know so far the performance has been strong for passive um and if we get to a point where active is consistently outperforming passive going forward that will be the time to sort of ask that question i don't think we're anywhere close to that just yet and then um, would you then say that active active might be more beneficial for people with maybe a shorter time horizon if it's something specific or or do you think the same rules apply it doesn't matter um i'm not sure about time horizon i think there are scenarios where look if you're trying to get into there are some sectors like small caps if you're going for sort of small cap fund management if you like you know uk micro caps or 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 whatever or or japanese small caps or something you know those are areas where passive may not have an edge or 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 sorry the other way around active might have an edge because active managers can go out there you know knock on the doors of 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 some of these companies and get better information than they can by knocking on the door of apple or or gsk or something right because you know that's a crowded market whereas the small caps are not a crowded market same goes for some of these frontier markets like you know vietnam or you know so, uh, an african equity market for example yeah. you know then you can you can make the point for active because you have an edge um, in those areas yeah okay good point and um in terms of kind of your portfolio even when you've got I don't know a balanced fund that you've got you mentioned kind of 40% in property 40% in equities 
things like that. How, how often do you rebalance um, that? And what would your advice be in terms of rebalancing for other people? Uh, yeah, that's a, you, you should rebalance or at least you should, there's always a, there's always a balance between looking at it every day and, and sort of, you know, looking at it, you know, every year. I mean, I think a good time period is quarterly. So, you know, have a look at your portfolio, the structure every quarter and, and see if, you know, if it's sort of out of balance uh, or if it's still in line with your original objectives, et cetera. That's it. That's a good way to do it. But, you know, most of my funds are pretty passive in terms of they rebalance themselves. So you can buy funds and ETFs that automatically rebalance. So you don't really need to do too much of that yourself. I guess my question is more from the overarching individual's portfolio. So where you've said you've got 40% in equities mm. and 40% in, um, in property and suddenly, I don't know, the, the equity market's gone nuts and suddenly you look at it one quarter and actually that 40% allocation to equities is now 60%. What yeah. would you then... Would you rebalance that at that point or would you kind of run your winners a bit? Yeah, that's a, that's another one where, you know, there's, there's a balance to be struck because if you're too strict about rebalancing, yeah. you're, you're going to, you're going to sell your winners too quickly. And yeah. uh, there is an argument, you know, one of the sort of, you, you might, your, your listeners might have come across equity factors. So there are different factors, momentum being a really sort of important factor. And the, the other ones are yield size, value etc but momentum is is essentially stocks that are going up in price and there's a lot of evidence to show that when stocks go up in price they continue to go up right so it's not just a one-off factor they continue to feed off that momentum so you've got to be careful not to cap that momentum too much so i think you know look at look at things on a quarterly basis but at the end of the year, you know, you've got to just, you know, take a view and whether you need to make any adjustments. I think the end of the year is always a good period, you know, between Christmas and New Year to kind of have a good look, take stock and, and see if you need to make any changes. In, in terms of um, current equity markets, like you mentioned earlier, tech stocks and things like that, which have always been kind of the growth side of things. Um, I think at the moment, like the, the proportion of the equity market that's, that's in the top six tech stocks is, is pretty huge and uh, it's never been that proportion before. What does the equity market look like when you take out those stocks and are they kind of propping it up or do you think actually everything is, 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 is highly valued at the moment? Um. Yeah, that's a really good question. There's been a lot of chat about, you know, your kind of Apples and Amazons and Microsoft, Google, Tesla, though, you know, you're referring to those names, you know, which have done very well. And they, they've actually, they have a high weighting in the S&P 500. And I think something like the top five is 22% and the top 10 is something like 30%. So, and it happens happens to be from a sort of statistical perspective that those top holdings have also performed amazingly well, especially in 2021. So, you know, that's kind of doubled up the impact, but you know, I, I think the whole market has done really well. Like you look at the Dow Jones, for example, right? That wasn't up as strongly as the S&P, but it was still up around 20% last year. And that's not very, you know, that's not as tech heavy. If you look at their top, the top 10 weights in the Dow, only two of them are tech. But you still had a you still had a a, 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 a sector an index that was up twenty percent uh, on the year, and then you look at the S and P sectors, and the top performing sector last year was energy, 
So oils and energy. The second best was real estate, interestingly enough. So they were both up around sort of 40% and tech was the third best. So it wasn't, it wasn't an outlier by any means, right? So it's been pretty broad based. That's, that's, that's the point I'm making. You know, the S&P, I think 80% of those stocks were up last year of the 500. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been pretty broad based. And why is that? Because you know, earnings, at the end of the day, equities are driven by earnings and profits, right? Corporate profits. And in in 2021, corporate profits were up 50%, right? Coming off a reasonably low base, but still up 50%. And, and this year, 2022, they're likely to go up by 8 to 10%. So ultimately, if profit growth is there, which it has been, you know, equities will do, should do well. There's two, there's two variables earnings and the price people pay for those earnings so those are the two sort of big things and so far earnings have been uh, you know helping in fact earnings are the highest they've ever been right now so you have to kind of you know fundamentally equities have to keep up with earnings otherwise um, it's kind of out of kilt mm-hmm. and what are you bullish on then for the next year and do you think there's any industries or markets or, or or assets at the moment that are currently undervalued in your in your in your view oh that's uh you've got me talking predictions now so yeah i think the whole sort of rotation to value potentially has further legs I, i'm i'm not i'm not it's not a very strong conviction but things like the FTSE 100 you know it's been as i mentioned it's been an underperformer for a number of years now and that's because it's heavy in energy in old economy stocks. But, you know, industrials, for example, as a sector, it tends to be a late cycle play. You know, historically, it's a late cycle play when interest rates are kind of going up and the cycle is getting more mature. So I like industrials. I like some of the value plays. I always like high quality stuff. So I'm always doing screenings on high quality stocks and you can actually get ETFs on high quality, global high quality stocks. I... I spend a lot of time doing options in addition to my kind of passive buy and hold, set and forget equity ETFs. So I spend a lot of time doing options. They give me a great sort of income, you know, so, so cash flow, monthly recurring income alongside my capital growth I'm seeing from my buy and hold investments. So options is something I'm spending a lot of time on. You can control how much income you want to generate from that strategy. And, and, and it's not as passive, right? So you have to sort of, um, you know, every week you spend half an hour or so sort of rolling your positions, et cetera. But that's something that, you know, for me has worked really well. And I'm getting, I'm getting sort of between 30 and 40% annually cash flow generation from options. Yeah. And what's, I mean, I guess the, the quick question to, to something that generates high returns is, well, what's the risk? Um, and, and, and how can you manage that? It's, it's, it's actually one of those things where if you, if you play equities through options, in my view, you get lower risk because you're actually ending up buying stuff below market value, which is it's an amazing concept. And when I explain this to people and people attend my options module, they're, they're pretty much um, in awe of what you can actually achieve through options. The only potential downside is FOMO. So with options, you get the cash flow, but you don't get the capital growth, right? Which you get with Apple and Amazon and all the rest of it. So you miss out on the capital growth, but you get, you know, very good cash flow generation. So that's really the downside. Um, The other downside is, and if you're not, if you're not very disciplined, if you're not sort of being careful, you can get into the trap of going after options, which are 
you know, if you wanted to, you can generate hundreds of percent per annum through certain types of options. And if you don't have that discipline, you can easily fall into that trap. It's a bit of a honey trap to kind of fall into. So, you know, avoid that. But it's a great asset class. Not many people are aware of it, but you get good returns and you get limited downside. And um, that's something that you kind of teach people on your... on your. Yeah, it's one of the modules. So we have eight modules. Uh, it's an eight-week program. You know, we teach people about ETFs, um, stocks, um, stock screening, asset allocation, etc., and crypto. But one of the modules is options. And, you know, that's, I leave that to the end so people kind of get the, you know, get all the, uh, the, the fundamentals out of the way. Because there's a lot of stuff that we cover in the earlier modules that leads into options. But, yeah, it's, it's one of the modules we cover. Yeah. Manish, that's been that's been really really helpful. How how can people get in contact with you if they've got questions or want to know a bit more about some of the courses that you that you run? So I'm on uh, I'm on social media, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and um, happy to answer any questions there. And uh, my website is investlikeapro.co.uk. So that I, I put out lots of information on their articles and you know analysis and commentary and and stuff. So all my details are on the website as well. So uh, whichever works for you. Brilliant, and I'll make sure we have a link to that in the show notes. So, yeah, thanks very much for coming on, and I'm sure our listeners will be uh, very happy that you did. And hopefully we can have you back again soon. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks for inviting me, Rod. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye.